universities are not understanding this, how crucial it is for many black students to be taught by someone who looks like them and gets and understands the experiences of race. I think there's a real absence on the part of the universities themselves and the sector more broadly in terms of understanding the relationship between those two groups. You know, students come and seek me out and they're moaning about their experiences. And sometimes I think, please, you're coming to me. Do you know that I experience exactly the same thing? Hello there and welcome back to the Oxford PPE Society podcast. I'm Leo Nascar, President of the Oxford PPE Society for Trinity Term 2020, our lockdown term, the virtual trinity. Every week from April until June, we release an episode with leading figures from the fields of philosophy, politics and economics. After a summer hiatus, we are back for an unexpected final podcasting flourish, diving in-depth into a very important topic. This is our final podcast, and it has been an absolute pleasure and privilege to have been able to host these 13 episodes. The PPE Society team have been diligently planning this podcast series, as well as our PPE SOC live streams since March, and I'm so proud of the wealth of experiences we have been able to share on our platform. Mika Eric Moza in particular, the Society's current president-elect, has been particularly energetic and crucial in keeping the program running smoothly, but I'm very grateful to each and every person on the team for contributing to making our events, the first of which went live over seven months ago, a huge success, with over 50,000 views and listens from around the world. We are using this final podcast right before the start of the new academic year to explore how racist attitudes pervade British society and British education today. The killing of George Floyd on May 25th prompted a global reckoning as individuals and organisations looked inwards and outwards to understand their impact in sustaining racism in their own societies. Words alone cannot change the world, but it is clear that the pandemic of racism that pierces our people and our principles needs exposing beyond the short term and not just in a blacked out Instagram feed or corporate statements. The Oxford PPE Society has a role to play in exposing racism in all its forms to all that it can reach. We are proud to be working alongside Onyx Magazine for this episode, the magazine for black creatives that has outgrown its Oxford roots and now sells its publications in five different countries. Onyx is a creative publication that features poetry, short stories, artwork and fresh think pieces. Kishel Rian, their history and politics editor, is our guest host and today she is in discussion with Dr. Nicola Rollock, an academic, consultant and public speaker who specialises in racial justice in education and the workplace. Dr. Rollock is a specialist advisor to the Home Affairs Select Committee's McPherson 21 Years On Inquiry and is a member of the Equality and Diversity Advisory Groups for both the Wellcome Trust and for the British Science Association. Dr. Rollock is published in a number of international books and journals and is the lead author of The Colour of Class, The Educational Strategies of the Black Middle Classes, which won second prize in the 2016 Society for Educational Studies' annual book awards. Her first sole authored book, The Racial Code, will be published by Alan Lane in 2021. In 2019, Dr. Rollock was selected by Times Higher Education Journalists as one of 11 scholars globally to have influenced the debate in higher education. 
and she's currently a curator of Phenomenal Women, Portraits of UK Black Female Professors, which will go on show at the Southbank Centre's Queen's Walk from October 10th. Now, let's join the discussion. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, to begin with, I'm going to start off with the first question. So can you talk about how you came to specialise in racial justice? Hi, Kashel, and thank you so much for inviting me on to the podcast. Um, it's a pleasure to be with you. So just thinking about that first question, how I became, how I came to work in racial justice. I've been thinking about this, and I don't think there's any tidy answer I suppose it really begins with my PhD, if I was going to try to be formal about it. Um, So my PhD was back in the 90s. I started in the 90s and we won't do any counting (laughs) at this point. And um, I looked at black students and academic success. Mm. And actually, I think that began the start of my journey. That was the pivotal point for me. And the reason I decided to look at black students and academic success is because my colleagues, my academic colleagues, and also the government more broadly, were really focused on underachievement and failure and disadvantage. I kind of paused and I thought, well, that isn't my experience. My family is working class, Hmm. but in terms of these big problematic words of disadvantage and failure, I just couldn't relate to them. And I was looking Mm. around me at my peers, and again, lots of my peers are working class, not all of them, some of them are middle class, but there was a disconnect between what I was hearing from policy circles and what I was seeing in my everyday life. And I thought Mm. also that there'd be something really interesting and perhaps really useful in exploring how black students become academically successful, given this broader landscape or this broader narrative of failure and disadvantage. Mm. And I didn't want to um, ignore the idea of failure because I think it's an important one, but Mm. I felt that it was a limited one. I felt it was restrictive. So I wanted to broaden the debate by asking, well, how did these students, given this broader narrative, become successful I think that would be my formal answer but if you were to dig at me and probe at me (laughs) I'd probably say that I've been thinking about race in some form some of it less tidy before I became an academic actually before the PhD my primary school was up to the age of eight was a state school all types went there different ethnicities all generally working class quite comfortably, you know, not on the levels of deprivation, but very comfortable. And we all had similar living circumstances. So I don't Mm. think I was thinking about race in any profound way as a child, even though I was quietly aware of its presence. But then I went to an independent, mainly white girls school. That was when the idea of difference through various things um, that I went through came home to me. So I think it's been murmuring in the background in a number of ways. (laughs) But in terms of my academic journey, it obviously began with my PhD. Wow, that's really interesting what you say about this idea of fixating on, well, not your idea, but I guess the wider narrative of fixating on things that are quite negative. You know, when you think of failure, you think of disadvantage. These Of course, you do, like you said, you do have to acknowledge these things in order to be able to move forward. But I think there is something about 
looking at that process in its entirety and focusing on the element of success and how you can replicate that is of course an interesting way to think about it. I also have not exact same background but similar for me I grew up in a working class household and I went to pretty working class secondary school state school up until the age of 16 and then when I was uh, 16 I moved on to a sixth form college which was selective and I mean not to say that the people in my secondary school weren't high achievers but in this school it was quite different the approach to our learning and I was introduced to a lot of people who I wouldn't have come across in my secondary school so I think that was definitely a a learning point for me. It's interesting isn't it because um, in my primary school my state school I was top of the class in art and I was pretty good at art and then I went to the independent school and I kind of dropped it after because <laughs> there were girls there were white girls there white middle class girls there for whom museums and arts was completely central to their lives completely central mm. so they'd been socialized quite differently in terms of their engagement or their consumption of art and particular types of art I would also say as well so the kind of art you'd see at the mainstream art galleries and my consumption is very different and so it's really interesting about what is seen as acceptable and normal within different spaces as well and I know we'll touch on this later on in our conversation. (laughs) Yeah definitely you've done a lot of work recently to highlight how how very few black female professors there are in UK universities. What made you select this area of study? Oh gosh, Um, I think as with most things, I'm I'm really interested in what isn't being said, Mm -hmm. Um, what people aren't saying, what they're ignoring. Um, And I'm really fascinated by data. So many years ago, and I I remember I had a mentor, I was assigned a mentor um, at when I was working as a researcher at a particular university in London. It was an older, older white woman. So this, I wouldn't necessarily have chosen her myself given the kinds of issues I wanted to explore. Mm-hmm. And I was a bit naughty actually, if I, I, I'll confess. <laughs> <laughs> because I wanted to get a feel of her engagement of issues around race. Mm-hmm. And so I said to her, did you know that there's 17, this is what the figure was at the time, wow. black female professors? And I paused and she said, oh, no, 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 you mustn't be disheartened by this. You too can do it, you know, chin up and you can progress. And it was really interesting because that's not what I was, that wasn't the point of making that statement. I was really interested in how it's possible that there are just 17 (laughs) black female professors. Not, it wasn't a sense of woe on my part. I didn't need my confidence boosting and being told that, you know, you too can make it if you try really hard. That wasn't the narrative. And, that, and again, that is often the narrative we hear when it comes to issues of race that, you know, if your confidence is okay, then you too can make it because we live in a meritocracy. <laughs> and actually, I, as I say, I was very much interested in how is it possible in that day and age, so I was thinking obviously in the present tense, in this day and age, that there could be one seven, 17 black mm. female professors. What on earth is going on? What is going on broadly, societally? What is going on in terms of higher education, in mm. terms of recruitment? What is going on in terms of progression? 
what are the experiences of these women? How did those 17 kind of break from the fold and make it to the end line, if you will? And so I've always had that rumination, if you like, that, that concern, that those sets of questions in my head. But it was only latterly in 2018-19 that I was awarded some funding to actually look at this empirically. And what I was interested in is examining the career experiences of black female professors and also specifically their strategies. So what strategies did these women who are now professors make use of, but consciously or only in reflection, to help them navigate the higher education terrain to enable them to reach professorship? And I have to say, what I heard I mean, I'm already quite sobered, I would say, by my own experiences in higher mm. education. But what I heard, I just thought this is a damning indictment on the sector and the sector's engagement with racial justice. Because what I heard time and time again is mm. that these women, their work was not valued. Or in one case, I remember one professor saying to me, look, talking about her journey saying to me look I can see my white male colleague over there only had to put in one book manuscript as part of his submission to um, professorship as part of his application mm -hmm. I can see my white colleague over there only put in one or had none based on my experiences I'm going to put in three because then they can't have an excuse or at least it minimizes the possibility that they will use the fact that I have X number against me. And so that, that really sobered me up. I think there's a real vacuum, a missing, and I would dare, dare I say a violence being done unto women of colour within the higher education sector. You know, what you've just spoken about then again, for me, is this theme within your research, you know, right from the beginning is focusing on this idea of the process what steps are being taken in order for someone to be able to reach that point of you yeah. know becoming one of the 17 <laughs> yeah. uh, black female professors and for me what's really quite striking is just how much extra work that these people need to do in order to achieve the same as someone else and for me this is a clear indication that a meritocracy is a fallacy. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. And I couldn't have put it better myself. And I think I, in, in my report um, that I wrote, capturing the findings of the study, I include a diagram mapping. So having looked across those professors that I spoke with, I spoke to 20 of what were then 25 black female professors, uh, UK black female professors, I traced the conventional route from entry point as lecturer through to professorship in order to show the kinds of decision-making and processes and barriers that normally or conventionally present themselves to the black female scholar on her journey to professorship. And when you look at that diagram, it helps you to better realize or understand why there are so few. Now, and let me just expand on that. Quite often when it comes to issues of race, people say, oh, well, it's a pipeline issue. Not enough are coming through. 
you know, frankly, I think that's very lazy thinking. Mm. And, and the, the analogy that I draw is this. You might have a bucket. So imagine that the higher education sector is our bucket and our pipeline is water being poured into the bucket. The problem with this bucket is that it has holes. It's rusty and it has holes all the way through and it doesn't really have a handle. So what happens is you can have as many jumping into this bucket or pouring into this bucket to keep with the analogy. But the problem is the bucket is not containing them. And we know from the research evidence that black and minority ethnic scholars more broadly are more likely to consider leaving higher education to work overseas compared with their white counterparts. But we also see that evidence reflected in the statistics. So we know that out of black men, white women, white men, proportionally, and I think this is key, proportionally, you're less likely to be a professor if you're a black woman. So in other words, black women are really invisible in higher education Mm. in terms of their experiences. I really like the the idea that you talk about by using a map because I think you know mapping mapping that out visually for people to be able to see and recognize is key because we need to find all kinds of ways of reaching these people to say hello something is going on here please can you have a look and you know you also wrote about that research for British Vogue which is yes. it's not the usual space for an academic. Um, so how did that come about and why did you think it was important to write for them? This is me being a very bad academic and not just publishing in high status journals. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I suppose I have various discomforts with higher education. I think we are very blinkered in our view. So for me personally, as a black woman within a university or a sector space, a higher education sector space, I don't particularly feel welcome as though I can be completely myself. You know, there are restraints, there are compromises. And let's be clear, we we all have to make some compromises, but I think there are particular compromises one has to make when racially marginalised and the intersections of that. And so there are, as a result, I want my work to speak back to and engage with people who look like me. And we've just talked about the data. There's not many people who look like me in my sector. And I'm also really clear that I don't just want to talk to other academics who are coming up with these convoluted phrases and terminology. I think that has its place. However, what I'm most keen on is bringing the issues, the debates that I have learned to understand as an academic to a broader audience. And it's for that reason that I approached, I mean, I I just approached Vogue and I said, would you be interested in running this feature? I was actually at a um, reception. This all sounds really awful to say this, but I was (laughs) at a reception in Downing Street and Edward Enninful was there. And I approached him and told him about the number of black professors that there are, UK black female professors. And at the time there were just 25 and he was aghast. And he suggested that I get in touch with their features editor, which is what I did. And that's how mm-hmm. the piece came to be. I, again, I just want to stress that in terms of engagement, informing debate, I would argue that that Vogue piece has perhaps done more than sometimes some of our academic mm-hmm. articles that are 8,000, 10,000 words do in a journal. And I think that the journal articles have a place, but in terms of how we assess excellence, 
mm. within higher education. I think that our concept of excellence should also incorporate these other forms of engagement and they should have the same level of respect because they don't. One is seen as taking precedence over another, but they should have the same level of respect, particularly if they're challenging the status quo, particularly if they're engaging different audiences and making them, encouraging them to think differently about what are now historic and systemic issues. One of the things that you mentioned when you were speaking there was about this idea of academia using, well, tending to use a lot of convoluted language. Sometimes it can be quite difficult to read and understand for the wider public just because of the terms that they use. And so that brings me to thoughts about campaigns and there's been a movement to decolonize the curriculum at universities. So one of those things is maybe the way that these articles are written, the language and in terms of accessibility, but there seems to be a lot of resistance to this at universities. Why, why do you think that is? Well, I mean, in, in brief, this requires a wholesale change. At least the way that I understand decolonization, it is about subverting the existing status quo. Mm. and challenging the existing power hierarchy. Now, conventionally, people who are in positions of power don't want to give up that power. Even when it comes to issues of race, you know, I, I've had arguments with white people who purport to know more than me on race, <laughs> which is slightly a challenging position to be in because even though they don't have the vocabulary or the experiences of racism, they still are sufficiently located in their own privilege that they will take up this position of argument. And so I think this is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with power and privilege. While I think there's been some resistance, I also would, would suggest that there's been some movement towards decolonization. I would question the nature of that movement. And I think we saw it kick in more and more widespread when the Office for Students introduced the demand that universities narrow and ultimately eliminate the degree awarding gap. So that is the gap between mm. black minority ethnic students and their white counterparts. I think that's when we saw universities kind of getting a little bit fidgety and begin to take this a bit more seriously. But I think that actually goes to a wider point, which is interest convergence. And this is a point made by, or first introduced by the African-American critical race scholar, who is a lawyer by, by trade, Derek Bell. And he argues that advance for, advances for people of color, for black people, will only come if it's also seen to be in the interest of whites. And so I make that point in relation to the Office for Students, because that's the point. When universities think there's something to lose, that we have seen some more concerted effort in this area. But I, I think there's also another point to make here, which is that quite often universities conceive decolonizing the curriculum as only about the curriculum, mm. as about the, what is taught on a bit of paper, when actually it's about policies, it's about your procedures, it's about how you engage with students, how you treat your staff. It's also about who is teaching the curriculum and how they're teaching it. So it's no point telling me that you've insert, dropped some names of scholars <laughs> of colour into your reading list and you've got someone who doesn't understand the issues, can't talk to the issues and isn't bringing that criticality to the lecture theatre. 
It's funny that you say that because as a black woman myself, your work is actually what brought me to Goldsmiths in the first place. I am now studying, a, well, I've just finished my master's degree in race, media and social justice. But when I, <laughs> thank you. And I initially planned to study the MA in education because I saw that you were teaching the race, culture and education module. And I thought, wow, this is so exciting. I, I told, you know, told some of my professors that I was quite close with when I did my bachelor's, I said to them, there's this university, there's a black lecturer who's going to be, you know, talking about race, culture and education, mixing all of these different things. Because at the time, you know, I, I actually wanted to become a professor because I noticed that there were no, yeah. <laughs> there were no black professors in my department, let alone black female professors. And so I just ended up studying a completely different course. Interesting. That's really interesting. And I think also really interesting because you're not the first person to say that to me. I've heard other students say it in terms of looking for black lecturers, looking for a PhD supervisor, you know, and they will go far and wide trying to find someone who's of colour and, and I think the and bit is key, and gets the issues. Because we know that not every person of colour really gets the issues. Let's be clear. Yeah, for sure. But I, I, I think universities are not understanding this. They're not understanding how crucial it is for many black students to be taught by someone who looks like them and gets and understands the experiences of race. And there's a real absence, I would say. I, I know that the Office of Students is trying to push universities to think better on this, but I think there's a real absence on the part of the universities themselves and the sector more broadly in terms of understanding the relationship between those two groups. You know, students come and seek me out and they're moaning about their experiences. And sometimes I think, please, you're coming to me. Do you know that I experience exactly the same thing? <laughs> it's just, yeah. I pulled myself together for you to support you because I want to support the next generation. But let's be clear here, just as with the research that I did on black female professors, my experiences very much mirror the majority of the women that I spoke to in terms of the barriers and the challenges that continue to this day. There's a real need to overhaul, to liberate, whichever word you're using, but to overhaul the system. Because I think we have different groups of white people. I, I, I tweeted about this this morning in terms mm -hmm. of white people that I've worked with, in, not just on projects around race and racism, but more broadly. I think we've got white people who are prepared to be humble and listen when it comes to race. I think we've got white people who understand it intellectually, but don't understand how to translate that into action. And then we've got white people who, through their own self-assessment, mind you, think that they get it, which I think is really interesting. How can you as a white person determine that you understand the experiences of people of colour and racism? I mean, that says enough as, as it is. But at the same time, we'll go to any lengths to protect their own interests. And in so doing, are quite prepared to undermine people of colour and any projects. So that's what we're faced with as a sector. And I think if we're to zoom out, it does beg questions about who's editing journals, who's awarding funding, who gets that funding, who makes decisions about who's teaching. We have something academics, most academics are obliged to work to, called a workload model, 
where there is a time calculation attributed to each of our pieces of work. So for example, we'll be told that if a student's essay is 3,000 words long, it should take you this long to mark it. Now that's really pretty in practice, but you know, if a student has been struggling with an issue or if they have got challenges in terms of writing, it can take you 45 minutes an hour, but it doesn't really matter because you've got to get the work done. And then I think there's an additional area of responsibility that often comes into play for black scholars, which is the point I made earlier. Black students gravitating to them for mentorship, Mm. for guidance. That doesn't appear anywhere in the workload model. So the fact of my being a black woman and the issues that I would have to deal with within a university, they're in addition to my job description. Mm. And again, the sector has been very, very slow and I would dare say complacent when it comes Mm. to waking up to these issues and the weight, the burden that it places on scholars and also students of colour. I think what you've said there is really, really important because in in part we are still thinking about this issue of the impact of poor representation. It's not just there are only 17 black female professors and that means that it's going to be very difficult for students to gravitate towards people who look like them if there are so few people in the institution. But I think there are many wider points that we can think about, as you've just mentioned. Recently, and this is an ongoing issue, so it's not something that's just happened over this summer, there has been a striking focus on racism following the murder in the US of George Floyd. Can you please share your thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't, I don't think I have a single thought. I have lots of thoughts. My heart goes out to their family and how devastating that must be to have your child experience injustice, but also to have it broadcast in such a deeply political way. And of course, it's made political by the perpetrator and by the colour of George Floyd's skin and the fact that we know that this kind of violence, as you say, is not one-off, that this is part of a historic narrative, not just in the US, but also in the UK. My thoughts, as I say, I have many thoughts on it. Um, I I was sickened to watch it, but I was also very much sickened by what followed in recent weeks and months. And what followed was this sickening display of empathy and outrage on the part of many white colleagues, peers, friends. And the reason I use the word sickening, because... I think there is a question to be asked. And the question to be asked is this, where were you before George Floyd was murdered? Where were you when we were sat in civilized boardrooms, lecture theaters, meetings, talking about these same issues of race and racism and you weren't paying attention? Where were you when black boys are being disproportionately excluded from school? Where were you when we've been talking about how few black female professors there are? Where were you? Are you actually telling me that in order for white people, and let's say the majority of white people, to wake up to the violence of racism, that it took a black man being murdered on the streets of America and for that to be broadcast globally. And I think that's one thing. 
it didn't just take that. It also took, for, we needed to be primed. And we needed to be primed for that moment in what happened a few weeks earlier, which was a white woman. Are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay. It's fine. Please continue. <laughs> it's okay. This always, this it always makes me so emotional. It's an emo- and, and I, I think, Kashel, I mean, it is an emotional topic. It, it, it's, I mean, what I was going to say is, and to kind of then come back to the emotion piece, because I think that's really key, is, you know, we had a few weeks earlier, a white woman by the name of Amy Cooper walking her dog. And then the interaction, let's call it an interaction, that took place with a black man, an African-American, to use the term she used, an African-American man. And I think what's so both fascinating and disgusting about that encounter is the fact that we have this African-American man doing something that we might not usually associate African-American men doing, this very innocuous act of bird watching. And the juxtaposition between that and the violence perpetrated by this woman was nauseating. And I want to say a third thing, because we have to look at the conditions under which we had this outpouring of shock from white people. This murder, recorded, broadcast, people being primed by what happened with the Cooper affair. And let's not forget that we are all globally, each and every one of us, in a state of heightened vulnerability because of a global pandemic. Are you really saying to me that we need those three factors in play before white people will go and buy every single book by a black author so that you can no longer get them on the shelves? For me, Kashal, and I I do want to kind of pause and recognise your upset and my frustration because Mm. there's something that strikes me as quite abusive about that. Because let's not forget, we have our Anthony Walker, we have our Stephen Lawrence, we have these people in our own country. So I perhaps have a different approach to many of my colleagues of colour who are speaking on these issues in that I'm quite nauseated by what I've borne witness to in the summer, not just the act itself, as in the murder of George Floyd, but by the statements that Black Lives Matter. It's like, why have Black Lives Matter so much? Why am I not sitting luxuriating in the boardroom alongside my white counterparts. If Black Lives Matter so much, why do we tend to be underrepresented at senior levels within the workplace? If Black Lives Matter so very, very much, why, when we look across every sector, are the odds stacked against us? And let me be clear, just in case anyone listened to this, is taking the view that I'm embodying a victim mentality. That, that couldn't be further from the case. If that were the case, I would give up on what I'm doing altogether. And I wouldn't be pursuing the debates, the argument, the policy changes that I've been pursuing as a black woman who is not herself outside of the issues. If mm we were so quick to embody a victim mentality, there wouldn't be, for example, the powerless of the UK's most influential Black Britons. So I just want to put that argument about victimhood 
firmly to rest. You asked me what I think about the murder of George Floyd. I've set out my view on it. But I want to also come to the point around the emotional burden, toil, violence on us. And I want to say black people. I'm not going to use uh, people of colour at this juncture. Black people. Because for many of us, we're witnessing that moment. Shocked, outraged, but also slightly numbed. Because we have brothers, fathers. You know, we have male counterparts who look like George Floyd. We ourselves as black women are not outside of the issues. I think that the emotional burden has not been explored enough, in my view. I know that many people have written about this, but there is something profoundly abusive when one has unpicked on a public stage the micro and macro aggressions that one has experienced throughout one's life and somehow, despite it all, try to put them into to boxes, you know, with ill-fitting lids. And thought, well, do you know what? That happened. You cuss with your friends, you cry, you have your moment, and you pull yourself together. You think, do you know what? I'm going to keep going. You know what? Let me invoke Maya Angelou. Still, I rise. We keep doing that. Yeah. And so, what we had in the summer was all of those wounds, all of those boxes, all of that pain. We had it cut open with a blunt blade and torn. It's like that wound was pulled apart for mm. white colleagues to pick over. I think the self-care piece has to come into this, our well-being and our mental health. I actually went offline for all of August <laughs> after I did yeah. the Channel 4 documentary, um, The School That Tried to End Racism. I then went offline for a month and mm. I didn't look at anything to do with race. And I think it's incumbent on us if we are to try to remain whole in a society in which we are racially minoritized to foreground conversations about our well-being. Today, we have statements that Black Lives Matter. Tomorrow, those statements will be in the gutter. So we have to hold on to our well-being. We have to hold on to a wider understanding, in my view, that these are systemic issues. Because as I say, let's not forget we had the murder in 1993 of Stephen Lawrence. Has institutional racism disappeared? Has racism disappeared? Let's not even bring the institutional into it. Let's not forget the historical lens when it comes to thinking about these issues, when it comes to zooming in on George Floyd. Let's not forget the history. Take advantage of this moment, but let's hold dear the historical context, our understanding of how systemic and embedded these issues are, and also keep to the fore considerations of our well-being. I do think you're right to think about these questions of well-being and one of the reasons why I felt so upset again mm. is because I'm the history and politics editor of Onyx magazine as you know and I started this role prior to uh, lockdown and right. so I knew that for Onyx it's really important that we champion black creatives that we give them a platform to speak on and share their voice share their words, be it through poetry, through essays, through art, 
and well I mean even prior to that I studied race media and social justice and I started that last year so all I have been reading about all I have been focusing on are these questions of race are these issues of racism and so we swing round to the summer following the murder of George Floyd and the outrage from everyone I spoke to some people and I told them about my position as history and politics editor of Onyx magazine and I told them what the magazine was about. Mm-hmm. Some people said, and also the same of my degree, they said, oh, that's, that's really topical at the moment. And I thought, topical? Yes. This is topical now. I started this master's last year. Racism was happening last year. And I promise you, two years prior to that when I did my undergraduate dissertation on reverse racism it still existed at that point as well it's been there it's been present and for people to say that my work is topical it really hurt and every time I start to think about the murder of George Floyd I am really moved because it took me so long to even be able to write about that Mm. As a journalist, you think that you, you're able to take on topics and write about many things and research, but that was so hard. It was so hard to just gather the right words to do it justice, but also to think about what's happening in the UK. Because as you mentioned, it's not just happening in the US, it's happening in France with Adama Traoré, it's happening in the UK, as you said, with the murder of Stephen Lawrence, Mark Duggan, you know, there are many names that we can reel off. And it's like you said, it's, it's sickening that there are names that are implanted in our minds. Yes. We shouldn't even know George Floyd's name, but we do because of what happened. I agree. And thank you for sharing that as well. We're sat here as black women talking about this, but it's painful stuff that we deal with. We manage, we try to find ways to navigate Earlier you were saying you were seeking, you were really excited to see me and obviously I wasn't there (laughs) in the end, so you changed course, but a black female scholar. And I wonder whether you could just say a bit more about why that was important to you. I mean, in some ways it seems obvious given where we've just landed, but could you just say a bit more about why that was important to you? Again, it touches on the things that you mentioned about representation. It's not just about having someone there who looks like you for the sake of seeing a mirror. It's far more multi-dimensional than that. It's thinking about someone who you can connect with in terms of the type of work that they're looking at, the way they're thinking about that work, how they can help to guide you to navigate these spaces that are not created for us. There's no other way to describe it. These institutions were not designed for women, first of all, and they definitely weren't designed for black women. But even just entering a space like that, it can feel oppressive. It can feel like you're not supposed to be there. And I think this was probably one of the most difficult things that I was dealing with when I studied my undergraduate degree, was that there really wasn't anyone who was black there were no black women I remember there was this there was one black woman who I believe was a researcher but we never spoke I didn't know what she did she was never in any of my lectures why I wanted to study education was specifically so that I could look at these issues again the similar questions that you mentioned of what 
what are the barriers and how can I remove them so that I can create the space for a future generation of, you know, young, bright black women who want to study further education. And of course, that's not the only way. You don't have to go into higher education. There are many different things that you can do. But the fact that I wanted to do it and I couldn't really see anyone else within my immediate circle who was doing it, I thought, oh, maybe I need to be the person who is representing for the women who, the black women who are going to come after me. And those were my thoughts. When I found out that I would be learning about this module and not to discredit the, the lecturers who were teaching on that module, I don't actually know much about them, but the idea of really focusing on issues of race and it being taught by someone who hasn't had the experience mm. of racism themselves that they can say, oh, I remember when this happened to me. Oh, this happened to me on the bus. Someone looks at me strange. Oh, this as black women and as black people, we can pull out all of these different stories. And that's not a cool thing to be able to do, but it's, it's an experience that you can share with someone who understands you and is able to look at you and say, I understand, not look through you. And mm. I think that is, that is key. I, I remember when I worked at the University of Birmingham, I taught a module on education policy. And as part of it, we did talk about representation in much in the way, not quite in the way that we are, because it was a mixed, bigger group. And we talked about the number of black female professors there were. And we just looked at the data and I just got them to ask. The point of the policy module was to encourage them to ask questions. Why do you think it looks like this? How is it possible? What's going on? How could it be different? And I remember some of the white female students said, well, but this is awful. Are you a professor? And I said, I'm not. And they said, oh my God, we're going to write to the VC about it. Which is really lovely. I'm still not a professor <laughs> yet, hopefully. But I think there's a lot to be said for student voice. Universities need students. And I mean, you know, we're in unusual times given COVID, but I think it's possible to imagine a scenario where students campaign to demand that their lecturers look like them, or at least that their departments have a better representation of black and minority ethnic staff. I think it's possible to do that. It's possible to work with NUS, it's possible to work with the local students' unions to lobby universities and to demand explicitly what, what not just what are they doing to recruit staff from, mm. from those backgrounds, but what are they doing to promote them? And crucially, what are they doing to retain them? And I think also, if you have a situation where there is a scholar, a, a black scholar, black and minority ethnic scholar, who's left the university, you talked about wanting to come onto that module and making different choices. I think students have sufficient power and it's within their rights to write to the institution and ask them, well, what happened to, <laughs> you know, what happened? I was coming to your university because of X, Y reasons, because mm. I, it, it was well ranked or, or highly ranked, excuse me, or because of a particular topic, or because of a particular lecturer, where are they? <laughs> what happened? Why were they not retained? <laughs> yeah, I do think those questions need to be asked. It's just a question of how and when. So for the listeners out there, <laughs> this is a call to action. If you, 
if you are going to a university and I, I am being serious, you know, if you, if you are going to a university and there are things that you see around you that are not happening in the way that you think it should be happening, ask those questions, ask those questions, because if we don't ask those questions, the status quo will remain. <laughs> and that's for sure. <laughs> I think I'm just going to come to our last couple of questions. So to bring it back to the topic of the murder of George Floyd and more, more so thinking about Stephen Lawrence, you were working as a specialist advisor to the Home Affairs Select Committee on the Macpherson 20 Years On Inquiry, which builds on the initial inquiry into the police investigation of the murder of Stephen Lawrence in the 90s. Can you talk about what that role involves as a special advisor? Yeah, so I, I am still a specialist oh. advisor to the uh, Home Affairs Select Committee. And I obviously can't speak about the inquiry because it's, it's ongoing and we've not yet published um, the report. But I, I can speak more broadly for your listeners about what the specialist advisor role involves. And the specialist advisor works very closely with the committee team, who are very much behind the scenes, to support the committee itself. And I think the nature of the involvement of a particular specialist advisor will vary according to the inquiry and the subject area. But conventionally, they are bringing their expertise, their knowledge in a particular area to support and inform the inquiry. Um, so for example, they may give recommendations about which questions to ask of witnesses, give recommendations about which witnesses to call to come before the committee. So it's drawing on the expertise of someone who's got a particular uh, knowledge base and using that to inform and support the parliamentary process when it comes to inquiries. I will not ask any more about it since it's ongoing, <laughs> but thank you for that. That is, that is very comprehensive. So to end on a slightly lighter note, well, to begin with, in your work, you are always challenging perceptions and you're always pushing people to reconsider that status quo. And you recently curated and commissioned photographs of black female professors for nominal women exhibition. Why was it important for you to do this? And why was it important for you to do this now? Well, let me deal with the last part of your question first, if mm -hmm. I may. Yeah. So this, was, this is not now. This, this is something that has been in the pipeline since early last year. I had the idea, I did the research, the empirical research, and then I also thought about how could I bring this research to a wider audience? And so I had the idea of doing some kind of, you know, magazine shot with the professors reclining in beautiful evening mm. gowns. Um, but I made some inquiries and apparently that's too difficult to do, but I still have a dream to do that. Um, and I'd love if one of the glossies, if one of the glossies is listening to that, <laughs> this is a shout out and request for that. So I had that idea and then I was toying with the idea of having their portraits done but I, I still was very much in love with this idea of the group shot. But I thought that as a second option, I could explore doing individual portraits. Because, and I wanted to do this again, as I say, to bring home the research to a wider audience, but also really crucially, to give these women a platform to honour these women, mm. to say, actually, I see you. 
you're in a sector within a society where generally we are invisible. And I wanted to turn that on its head. I, as a black female scholar myself, I know how difficult it is to navigate higher education. There are knockbacks and challenges at every corner. Mm. And I wanted to say to these women, I see you, I hear you, I see you. This is your moment, this is your platform from one black woman to another. It so happened that the research, the empirical research was covered quite a lot in the press and a photographer by the name of Bill Knight saw it and got in touch with me. And he too had an idea about doing portraits of these women. So we met up and talked about it. And I was really clear when I spoke to Bill, because Bill's a white man, a white middle-class man, mm. that actually you are in a position of power mm. as someone who's standing behind the lens you are in a position of power, but also as a white man taking the portraits of these black female scholars, you stand in terms of your identity in juxtaposition to them. And it's mm. really important that you consider the power that you hold, both in terms of your identity and also as someone behind the lens. And I think that'd be an interesting conversation to unpick and explore with Bill in terms of how he's found that journey and his own mm. reflections um, as he's engaged with the project. So I commissioned Bill. He spent a lot of time sourcing funding for the project. <laughs> and I subsequently commissioned Bill to take the portraits of black female professors. And I broadened it beyond what the data show, because I wanted to capture as many as possible within my mm. budget. Yeah. So I captured, um, I think, women who'd been professors at least what at some point over a three-year period, as I say, because I wanted to give as many that platform as possible. And we had a, the private view in March this year um, at Paul Hastings, which is a law firm in, in the city. And then we were due to have a community and education-based launch at City Hall, but the pandemic struck, so we cancelled that. So the people who we'd invited, who we had to say, we're really sorry it's not happening. And there were some people who we didn't actually get around to inviting, um, so they may feel slightly, um, knowing that the project was happening, feel slightly abandoned. But what I'm really pleased to say is that around the same period, so at the start of the year, I had also approached the South Bank Centre and I said to them, I think this would be perfect in your space, you're London's leading arts centre. Mm. This would be a magnificent platform to showcase these black female scholars. You know, what say you? <laughs> and and <laughs> they said yes. And so the conversation has been happening for a long time. I'm really pleased that it hasn't just been a triggered, a trigger um, reaction or response to what we were talking about earlier in terms of George Floyd. So what's happened is that latterly we've picked up the conversation and phenomenal women, portraits of UK black female professors will be on show at the South Bank from the 10th of October through to the 8th of November. And it's outdoors. So it means that, uh, hopefully means that people feel comfortable visiting knowing that it's in an outdoor space. Wow, that's so exciting. <laughs> it is. A lot of work behind the scenes. And I have to say, I just want to give a shout out to the team at South Bank, because I know that they have gone through a number of challenges in terms of redundancies, if that isn't too political to say. 
but the team at South Bank have been a joy to work with. They've been incredibly supportive and really supportive of the vision that I have for the work. So I just, a bit, excuse me, a big shout out to the team at South Bank. Wow, thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. This is really exciting. I will definitely be going down to the South Bank to view these, particularly if they're outside. That means that, you know, anyone can come along, which is brilliant. Thank you so much for taking part in this interview. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on here. And I'm really happy, actually, that we were able to touch on lots of different points from slightly more emotional topics to this really incredible exhibition that everyone has to go to (laughs) (laughs) thank you so much Kishal thank you so much it's been a joy speaking with you I know our conversation obviously has been challenging because neither of us sadly are outside of the issues but I think we also ended on a lovely note which is a celebration of black women (laughs) thank you